Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been going through the book of John. And uh, we've come now to John chapter 9. Now, if we look back, we saw that it uh, began out with this intro in John chapter 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we kind of transitioned into this, uh, this Cana cycle that was all about kind of just introducing who Jesus was. Well, in John chapter 5, we introduced another section called the, the festival cycle. And as we kind of go through this, John has shown us a, a particular feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, that we've been kind of going through since John chapter 6. And as we've kind of gone through this in John 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, Jesus has been kind of unveiling himself, making these bold claims about who he is. This week, I kind of came across this passage, this quotation in a commentary, and I wanted to share it with you. It says, how will anyone see Oh, you just passed it there. There you go. How will anyone see? Throughout chapters 5 through 8, we find a number of answers to this question. People will see or recognize Jesus as the Christ if they listen to Moses and so to God in John chapter 5. If they listen to the Father and learn from Him in John chapter 6. If they choose to do God's will in John 7 verse 17. And if they hold on to Jesus' words in John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32. But we've seen that even the most promising amongst God's historic people, i.e. those who initially believed, have failed to do these things. How then will anyone be able to see? It's the question we have in front of us. It's the context of John chapter 9. We've got to see, but nobody does. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of handing a child a flashlight in the dark. Have you ever had this? If you haven't, don't, because it's a bad experience, right? Uh, because what they'll do is they'll shine it on the thing you ask them to shine it, and then they'll forget, and they'll shine it right in your eyes, right? So this, the flashlight is either a completely blinding light to you, or it's illuminating, but it can't be both at the same time. This morning, as we kind of unpack John chapter 9, we're going to find Jesus, the light of the world, to be a blinding light or an illuminating light, but he cannot be both at the same time. Jesus will either be something that draws attention to God's provision and grace and kindness to us in Christ, or he will be someone who draws attention to the hardness of our hearts. So here's our big idea this morning. The light of the world either opens eyes or blinds them. Jesus Christ either opens eyes or blinds them. We're going to see this in three different movements in our passage. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to see the miracle performed as Jesus kind of uh, spits on the ground and makes mud and applies it or anoints this man's eyes so, and then calls him to go uh, and wash in the pool of Siloam so that he might see. Jesus performs the miraculous, the thing that no one has ever seen. But then secondly, we're going to see this uh, miracle, this probed, or it's questioned. In verses 8 through 34, these Pharisees will kind of get hold of this man who was born blind and now sees, and they'll start prodding him with questions and asking him about the legitimacy of what happened to him. They'll make conjectures about the person of Jesus, and in so doing, they'll show themselves hardened by their own sinfulness. And then in verses 35 through 41, we're going to see the miracle personalized as Jesus interacts with these individuals. He personalizes what exactly has just happened to them. 
So let's dig in in verses 1 through 7. We're going to see this miracle performed in verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man's, uh, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The first thing we see is this uh, question over the cause of suffering. Jesus is leaving the temple after John chapter 8, and almost immediately he comes upon this, this man born blind. And the disciples stop Jesus and ask him and say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus answers. He kind of uh, deals with their logic. Their logic is obvious, right? That all negative things happen as a result of sin, and therefore this man was born blind, so someone must have sinned. Either uh, this man's parents or someone down the line or, or something happened that this man was born into sin. And so Jesus takes this opportunity and kind of redirects their thinking in verses 3 through 5. Now he says in verse 3, he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents Jesus is telling us that personal sin is not always the cause of suffering. Now, to be clear, we've talked about this recently. Universal sin is always the cause of suffering, right? We saw this from Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve disobey God. They receive the curse later on in Genesis chapter 3. We see this in Romans chapter 8, that that Paul tells us that uh, God subjected the world to futility, Right? But this is always God's response to human sinfulness, that he initiates suffering so that we can highlight our kind of disconnection from him. So Jesus is going to highlight this particular thing. It's not about this man's personal sin that he's received this, but he goes on to say, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love how John does this, the way he writes these statements, or, or maybe this is factual how he actually stated it. But Jesus comes out and he, he uses this kind of play on words. He says that uh, he's going to use this blind man so that the works of God might be seen, right? Might be displayed. And so Jesus invites his disciples to the work that he's still with doing with them, right? Just lost my place. Excuse me for a second. So he's inviting them to this work. In verses 4 through 5, he's saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he is the light of the world, just like he told us last week in John chapter 8. But verse 4 brings this clarification. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. The light of the world's present with you. We're going to do the works right now. We're going to validate my identity as the Savior by these works, by these signs. So that's exactly what he does. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus uses spit and mud to make the man see. Now, if anyone ever tries to put their own spit on you, just walk away, right? 
I have no idea why Jesus used spit and mud. There's all kinds of conjecture and commentary. Some say it draws attention to Genesis 2, where God created man out of dirt. Others will say it has something to do with sociological implications. Other, other people, uh, Calvin said that uh, mud is kind of symbolizing this blindness. And so we're kind of doubling down on the blindness of this man. But regardless, Jesus uses spit and mud. And he calls him to go and wash in this pool of Siloam. And imagine being this blind man trying to work your way across the crowds in the temple to get to this pool so that you can wash just based on faith. So he does. He comes back seeing. And that's the most important thing about this. This man born blind now sees. The man who only knew darkness now sees light. And this all happens with some spit, some dirt, and a short walk to a pool. Like so often is the case in John, this particular miracle has two meanings. It has a physical meaning. This man was blind and now sees. But it has a spiritual meaning underneath it. This happens so often in John. We see this uh, throughout John's writing. We saw it in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned water into wine. He's drawing uh, attention to kind of the deeper meaning of this water coming from wine, that the, the ceremonial law has been filled up, and now this new season of, of life in Christ is here. In John chapter 11, in a few weeks, we'll see that Jesus uh, uses Lazarus's death to highlight himself as the resurrection and the life. And specifically, John 9 uses blindness to describe our spiritual condition. In fact, Jesus is kind of tapping into a motif here that's existed throughout the Scriptures. In Isaiah 6, uh, Jesus, or God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is writing to the churches, and he writes to the, the church at Laodicea, and he says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, Paul describes that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, blindness is this kind of picture of our spiritual condition before we knew Christ. Scriptures use this physical case of blindness to illustrate our inability to navigate spiritual things. Imagine, just for a second, taking a blind person into a corn maze and asking them to kind of find their way out. Now, maybe they have some kind of strength that I don't know about, but I would think that it would be particularly cruel. You might say, well, at least they're surrounded by food. That was a really dumb joke. They're still incapable of navigating through their own blindness, right? So you and I cannot figure out our spiritual selves. We don't have any kind of sense of up and down and left and right. We need someone to show us the way. I had a friend who uh, was colorblind. And he, he had to uh, have his mother kind of 
link his, his shirts and his pants so that they went together because he didn't want one color shirt to not go with the color pants, right? So he had this system, this complex system to help navigate the issues of colorblindness, right? You and I need someone else to authoritatively take us through the process of our own blindness. What, G, what, G, what happens uh, coming out of this is we see not the blind men exercise blindness. We see those who are spiritually supposed to be ahead of the curve exercise blindness. Verses 8 through 34, we see that this miracle is kind of questioned. It's kind of uh, probed. It's, it's uh, kind of brought out and, and kind of questioned and, and kind of delegated. It, it just is there to be kind of poked and prodded by these Pharisees. So we see the miracle probed in verses 8 through 34. Look at verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus uh, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I, I do not know. This scene is almost comical, right? It's almost like these people assume that he's not only blind but deaf. They're talking about him when he's right in front of them saying, is this the same guy? And the whole time the guy's saying, I'm he, I'm the guy, right? I'm the man. But notice in verse 11 that the man born blind now becomes an advocate for Jesus. Look at what he says, verse 11. The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And this advocacy isn't uh, secretly kind of guided or directed by Jesus. He doesn't even know where Jesus is. In fact, he, last time he heard from him, he didn't even see him. Uh, it was when Jesus told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He still has yet to even see Jesus. Look at verses 13 through 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again uh, to the blind man, what, did, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. See, the Pharisees ask these questions. And the first question they ask is, is, how do you see? Tell us the story of what's going on. So this man recounts the story, and then uh, they, they kind of make a deduction. In verse 16, they say, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, right? This man cannot be uh, uh, from God because he doesn't keep the laws that we keep. Obviously, we're righteous, we're good. This man doesn't keep the law with us, and so he's not good. It goes on in verses 18 through 23, and they ask a second question. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, no, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he, he will speak for himself. 
his parents, uh, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the second question these Pharisees asked was, was he really born blind, right? Not just, what was the story? Tell us what happened. And by the way, he healed on the Sabbath, so he's not legitimate. But now tell us exactly what he did. Was he really born blind? Verse 22 is the kind of key to this understanding so that uh, we understand that these Pharisees are kind of threatening these parents so that they're kind of manipulated in their response. See, the Pharisees were threatening them with this idea that they would be removed from the synagogue, right? You, you remove from the synagogue, all of your social sphere is gone. There's no more bridge club. There's no more uh, law keepers club or whatever else there is. There's nothing there for you. But they do affirm these two things. He is our son. He was born blind. They get skittish about explaining this miracle. They kind of uh, get really shy about what they're saying. Now, this is Mother's Day, right? And think about this, mothers, as you're there and you're seeing your son now healed of blindness. This, this is a gift to you. It makes you feel especially good and worthy as a mother, as this mom just kind of throws her kid under the bus, right? He's of age. Ask him. I don't want to deal with the responsibility of this. I don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. He's of age. Why don't you talk to him? See, in the end, they turn their son over to these Pharisees. And so they go back in verses 24 through 34, and they they want to speak to the man again. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind, and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So they question him again. Just a lot of stuff for us to note here, right? First, notice the Pharisees' dismissal. That phrase, give glory to God, that actually was used before in Joshua chapter 9. When, when Joshua finds Achan, after uh, this, Israelites had gone out to Ai to destroy the city of Ai and, and found defeat there, and God uh, revealed to Joshua and to the leaders of Israel that this was because of sin. And they kind of went through this process, and Achan had stolen some of these uh, uh, 
items from the city of Jericho and hid them underneath his tent. And so by uh, process of lot, they kind of hunted down Achan. And finally, Joshua says, give glory to God. And Achan comes to confess his sinfulness. It's the same phrase that's used here. These Pharisees are pushing uh, this man to kind of confess that he's wrong, to, uh, to kind of admit that he's making this up or something else. See, make no mistake, these Pharisees are manipulative. They, they have dismissed Jesus, and now they push this man to do the exact same thing. But this man pushes back, right? He, he starts to kind of fight back with them. In verse 25, they, he works through this kind of basic logic. And he says, well, whether this man is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind, and, and now I see. It's as if to say, whatever Jesus is, he's healed me. In verse 29, when the Pharisees claim they don't know where Jesus came from, the man confronts their thinking. First, he, he points out, hey, they, he opened my eyes, right? And secondly, he points out that nobody's ever done this thing. Theologically, it doesn't make sense that, that no one who's in sin can pray to God and have that prayer answered. Historically, it doesn't make sense. Nobody's ever healed the eyes of a man born blind. And so finally, he kind of summarizes his argument. Verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So we're coming to a head here, aren't we? We see this kind of battle happening between these Pharisees and this man born blind. Uh, these Pharisees have all the authority and all the power they have all the responsibility, all the respect given to them, but this man has truth. This man has a validation of his blindness now gone, his sight returned to him. And in verses 35 through 30, 41, excuse me, Jesus is going to come back into the scene and kind of explain it all for us. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed and worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not... Uh, Excuse me. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. See, by believing, this man sees. Jesus reconnects him, uh, reconnects with him, and asks this question Do you believe in the Son of Man? What happens then is this man's understanding has been kind of growing throughout this passage. John Piper highlights that uh, it starts off in verse 11 that Jesus sees a man, right? That Jesus meets this man in verse 11. In verse 17, he calls him a prophet. But here in verse 38, he recognizes him to be the son of man, and he bows down and worships him. You see how slowly but surely this man is invited into deeper and deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we might miss the importance of this phrase, this question that Jesus is asking him, do you believe in the son of man? We might 
first of all, we see Jesus use that phrase all the time, the son of man, right? And all of us who are males in this room could also say we are the son of man, right? We've got a father somewhere. But Jesus is kind of tapping into this scriptural motif, uh, going back to Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 12, uh, where, where uh, the passage Daniel describes, he describes that uh, one who's going to come into the presence of the Almighty God, a, a son of man, will come into the presence of Almighty God and will be given authority and power from God himself. And so Jesus is tapping into this idea of this Daniel 12, son of man. And he's asking this man born blind, do you believe that I'm the one who will receive authority and power from the father? Do you believe that I'm going to fulfill what Daniel 12 spoke of? Do you believe that I am the person, the one who healed your eyes? Am I going to go into the presence of the father and be the one who receives authority and power from him? Notice that what he does then is he falls down and worships. Remember that this book started with these words. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that what's happening? This man born blind is uh, believing upon the name of Jesus Christ. He's believing that Jesus is everything he claims himself to be. Man born blind isn't believing what the Pharisees are passing out that this man has a demon. They're not believing that this man is a sinner. He's believing that Jesus is the fully authoritative Son of God, the Son of Man who goes into his presence and receives all authority and honor from him. But verses 40 through 41 give us the contrast of that. These these Pharisees, in contrast, are, are actually rejecting the person of Jesus. And they're also in some kind of motion. In verse 16, they say, this man is not from God. In verse 22, if anyone confesses that Jesus is Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. In verse 24, this man is a sinner. In verse 34, the man born blind was born in utter sin. See, they slide further and further into rejection of Jesus, into this alternate reality. And in this reality, Jesus is a demon-possessed sinner who somehow performs these miraculous signs. In verse 41, Jesus kind of sums up his interaction with them. He says, if you were blind, you would have no... But now that we see your guilt remains, these Pharisees remain in a status of guilt before God because of their ability just as incapable before God. In contrast to the man's spiritual sight, these Pharisees are spiritually blind and unaware of their spiritual blindness. I love what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon has this quote. He says, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ's It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. See, these Pharisees are not recognizing Jesus because they think too much of themselves. They claim to see when they are truly blind. We might miss it. We might miss what Jesus is stating here in verse 39. 
Because if you notice, he's interacting with the man born blind in the first two verses, in verse 35 and uh, 35 through 38. He gives this phrase in verse 39, and then he interacts with the Pharisees in verses 40 through 41. But notice what he says in verse 39. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not, do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. See, Jesus is that light, that light which gives sight to, blind, to some who are blind, and blinds those who think they have sight. Jesus is that flashlight. When it's shined in your eyes, you can't see a thing. But when it's shined upon the thing you're looking at, you see it with clarity. This morning, Jesus is this means of judgment. Isn't that what he says in verse 39? For judgment, I came into this world. If you remember back, that stands in direct contradiction, or at least a seeming contradiction, to what Jesus says in John 3.17. Jesus said this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn or judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He says the same thing in John chapter 12. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save. But here in John chapter 9, verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into the world. What is going on here, Jesus? You're kind of speaking out of both sides of your mouth. This is tough for us. We sense that Jesus is both saving and condemning when we read these verses. And that's the truth. He is the one who gives life to some. And his life will become the means of judgment and eternal death to others. Both happen at once. Right? Jesus is speaking about himself. He's uh, defining who he is. He's saying, I am the light of the world. If anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. He's, he's giving these massive statements. I'm the resurrection and the life. And he's calling men to either believe in him or not believe in him to two drastically different outcomes. He says it with clarity in John chapter 6. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. See, Jesus is this kind of touchstone. You understand what a touchstone is, right? But back in the day, when you wanted to identify a precious metal, you would have a thing called a touchstone, and you would strike it against this rock, and it would show you what kind of precious metal it was. It's uh, the idea of a litmus test. Do you remember your seventh grade science test? You could determine whether something was an acid or a base by dropping a piece of litmus paper in it and seeing what color it turned. It would tell you what it was. Jesus is showing us who we are. When we respond to him in faith, we have righteousness before God. We believe on him. He gives us the righteousness of his life and his death so that we can stand before God with confidence. But when we reject him, We make ourselves prone to all of his judgment and all of his wrath. So to be clear, right now, you and I are hearing. And thus, we are either responsible for belief or unbelief. We're hearing the words of Jesus. We're hearing the words of Christ, and we're responsible for the things that we hear right now. They, they divulge who we are. 
They show that we are either those who live in faith or those who do not. It's worth noting this morning that God isn't going to just judge the world, that God has also judged his own son. See, chapters from now, what will happen is this innocent Jesus who's done nothing wrong will be marched toward Calvary. He will be beaten, stripped of his clothing. He will have a crown of thorns put upon his head, and he will go to Calvary already bleeding. He will be placed upon a cross. He will be lifted up for all to see, to be mocked and spit at by sinful men and women, even though he himself knew no sin. See, what that is, is that's the punishment that you and I deserved for our sinfulness. We deserved eternal death. Isn't that what God said in Genesis chapter 2? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Jesus, the sinless Savior, goes to a cross, dies a sinner's death, bears the judgment, the wrath of God. Even though he himself had not sinned, God placed my sin and the sins of all who believe on him throughout the ages so that Jesus would bear our punishment at the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that Jesus is the means both of judgment and salvation. We are judged or saved upon our faith or our unbelief. This morning we recognize that Jesus wasn't the only one who has this revealing power. But now as we are saved and made new in Christ, The scriptures tell us that we also are revealing this. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You know, we've made it one of our emphases this year that we would talk about our role as witnesses. And what Paul is kind of tuning us into this idea is that that, that Jesus has led us in triumphal procession, that the battle is done, that the war has been won. But now you and I bear the stench of Jesus' sacrifice to God. We bear that stench in this world full of people who are either trusting in him or not trusting in him. Look at Paul's words, what he says, that we are the fragrance from death to death, or the fragrance from life to life. See, to the world, we are the smell of Jesus unto God. Picture, excuse me, the picture here is of a sacrifice. Imagine uh, being around the temple and someone lays that animal on the altar and that altar, that, that, that sacrifice is burning. And that stench, that aroma fills the air. That is the stench that you and I let off to the world. We smell like graciousness, 
kindness and mercy from God. To others, we smell like justice and wrath. Notice here that that smell is divisive. That we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul looks at this and he concludes, who is sufficient for this? Who's up to this task? Which of us can step into a room and immediately tick off some and ingratiate others to ourselves? It's only the work of Christ in us that's able to do this. It's astounding to me how many times we're shocked by how we offend the world around us. It's it's astounding to me, I should say this way. It's astounding to me how many times I find myself disappointed by the world's reaction to Christians. I should know better, shouldn't I? Paul tells me better, right? We, We should find ourselves in this place where we are ingratiating ourselves to those who love Jesus and somehow at odds, even if we are gracious and loving and kind, somehow at odds with those who are hardened to sinfulness, in sinfulness. See, this morning, Christian, all of your life is witness. There's not certain parts of your life that smell like Jesus and other parts that don't smell like Jesus. You're this gracious aroma, whether you like it or not. We tend to think about witness as this kind of very uh, specific time and place where we share the gospel of Jesus. We, we think about it as the times that we get to talk about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. But the truth is, the way that you raise your children, the way that you handle your finances, the way you go about your work, all of these things point to your faith in Jesus Christ. When you refuse to cut corners in your job and it frustrates your coworkers, not just because your boss might see, but because Jesus Christ is your Lord and you know that he sees all the things that you do, that probably frustrates and convicts those non-Christian people around you. And when you refuse to uh, embrace kind of the world's ethic about your marriage, that might frustrate and convict the people around you not because you're being a jerk about it, just because you believe that this is how God has made the world. When you handle your finances in such a way uh, that other people are convicted about how you handle your finances, it's a thing that shows that you are the aroma of Christ, that you yourself are also an offering placed upon the altar, that sweet-smelling aroma unto God. Isn't that what Romans 12 says? Christian, all of your life is witness. You don't pick and choose which parts are Christian and which parts aren't. The whole of your life should speak to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We recognize that this man born blind, um, he interacts with Jesus in verses 1 through 7. He interacts with Jesus in verses 35 through 41. But there in the middle, there's no interaction with Jesus. This man becomes witness all by himself as he's been fundamentally changed from from blindness to sight, as he's been miraculously healed by this man, he's going to advocate for this man. Isn't that a picture of who we are? That we are brought from blindness to sight. We sang Amazing Grace this morning. I once was blind, but now I see. By God's grace, you are what you are. By God's grace, you have become a witness, whether you know it or not. 
And in that way, we all need grace and mercy in our time of need, don't we? I want to pray this morning that God allows us to be the witness that he's called us to be, allows us to be this aroma in our world. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the life of Jesus. Jesus, who brings us out of our spiritual blindness into our spiritual sight. Jesus, who takes others from their spiritual or seeming sight into spiritual blindness. Father, we trust now that you're accomplishing your works in the world. Give us confidence that Jesus is that touchstone, that litmus test that reveals the hearts of those to whom he's presented. Help us to be bold with your message. Help us to be bold with uh, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, that we ourselves are a sweet-smelling aroma to others, but to others we're the fragrance of death. And so, Lord, give us confidence before you on how we might interact with the world. And let us live to please you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.